Good morning, everybody. You want to turn to John chapter 3? That will be our first launching point. Before I begin, I just want to send a shout out to an unsung hero throughout the week. Um, and she'll probably take me aside later and tell me that I shouldn't have done that. But every day that we came in for VBS, this place looked like there was not a VBS that happened the night before. And that is all due to um, our good sister, Peggy. Um, so if you want to... And I'd like to take this time to give a shot, uh, an encouragement to the guys. If you remember the video, you guys were probably watching the kids, um, but I, didn't, I don't have kids and they weren't up here, which makes sense. Um, but we had three videos that they were playing off of. And if you notice, it was mostly women that were doing the singing and the motions. And that's a great thing. But there was this one guy that was there. Um, and I was kind of fascinated with watching him all week. But then I realized the thing that fascinated me the most was that he had a heart to want to uh, help in this type of ministry to where he didn't take himself so seriously that he couldn't learn these motions and learn these songs and be videotaped and broadcasted probably primarily for his church to teach the kids these motions. And I just want to encourage the guys here that, um, you know, it's great that um, our wonderful women are stepping up, but we need to step up too. We need to teach the kids. We need to teach Sunday school classes to the kids, Bible studies to the kids. We need to show them that we love them outside of, um, uh, I guess, traditional, not traditional, but uh, stereotypical manhood. We just need to show them Christ because Christ says, let the children come to me and we as men ought to be ministering to the children as well. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this wonderful week, this great week uh, of seeing your love on display, Lord. We thank you for the provisions that you give it, gave us, the protection that you had upon us. Um, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate provision and the ultimate protection, Lord. Father, we just pray that you would be with us here today as we go through this study and that um, we would learn to love you more, learn to trust you more, and to learn to, um, as that last song uh, said, be all in for you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses uh, 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And then I'm going to uh, go over to verse 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I'm going to ask you some questions. Feel free to shout out the answers. Uh, but just hang with me and, and just track with me and try not to throw anything at me. Does God love sinners? Okay. What's a sinner? Well, yes, we're all sinners and everyone is a sinner. Um, but what does a sinner do to be called a sinner? Commit. Okay, we commit sins, we go against the will of God. How does God feel about sin? He what? He hates it. How does God feel about a person who commits sin? I'm sorry? Yes. He loves a person, hates the sin. Okay. We're, uh, this is actually what we're going to study in the scriptures today. Um, I believe that this is a very, one of the most important issues that needs to be addressed um, in the church, for the church, and for the world. And a lot of confusion comes from within the church, unfortunately, and obviously from outside the church from the world. Um, I don't think that we have a, a balanced view of God's love. On one hand, there are some who think that God's love dismisses or negates this, all this talk of having wrath and hatred against evil and evildoers and wickedness and injustice and unrighteousness. Um, and so these people, and maybe this is an extreme example, but if I went up to my brother and punched him in the face until his nose broke, these people would comfort my, my, or my, my mother would comfort my brother and then turn to me and say, it's all good. On the other hand, there are folks who think that God's love for unrepentant sinners either does not exist or almost doesn't matter or has no ultimate concern for those who reject him other than hatred and wrath. And those are the two far extremes um, that I always come across. I don't know if you guys always come across this. And so, as I was wrestling with this through the scriptures, I realized that my own understanding of God's love was not balanced. Um, and, not, and I, being that I'm not any special person, I figured there'd be other people whose uh, view were not balanced. 
So we're gonna answer some of the questions that we asked, and we're probably gonna answer questions that weren't asked um, this, this morning. And we're gonna see the relationship of God's love and God's wrath and how it works out. And we're gonna use John 3.16 as the framework for that understanding. We're gonna to touch on these other verses here, but the framework is gonna be just that one verse in three parts. And so we should start with, for God so loved the world. God's love is such a wonderful and impossibly beautiful thing to just think about. I mean, if we, John says in his epistle that God is love. And so there's this, the, the, the sense that, Everything about that love just comes out of God. It's who he is. It doesn't need to be wooed like us when it comes to romantic love. It doesn't need to be drawn out. It doesn't need to be implanted. It's just who he is. And we see that perfectly in the Trinity here. I mean, we read uh, 335 where it says, The Father loves the Son and has given him all things into his hand. There's other verses that talk about the Son's love for the Father. And we know that this is a perfect love, a holy love. There's no ulterior motive between the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, and the Spirit loving the Father and the Son. That it's a, a pure and holy love that has no twisted motive behind it. And we see that it's a giving love. He, the Father has given all things into the hands of his Son. And the son, when he was, um, in order to honor his father because he loved him, he would obey him and he would do what his father did and he would say what his father has done. And the spirit would likewise give honor and glory back to uh, the father and the son. And so there's this constant, perfect giving of love within the Trinity here. And none of it needs to be drawn out, but it's just the nature of God to love and to give his perfect love. And so when we come to see God's love for the world, we have to go back to creation. Um, here we're going to have a bunch of verses. Um, so Ben, bear with me. There'll be some verses that I switched out, so that would be my fault, not Ben's fault. Um, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't need to create the heavens and the earth. He was perfect and self-sustaining, and he didn't need anything else to be fulfilled. His love is not a love that seeks fulfillment or seeks affirmation. And, and we see here that he wanted to share his love. Only God existed. And I'm just going to throw this out there for bonus points. Chance did not exist, and accidents did not exist. This was... A predetermined work of God. And I know some people think that, the, uh, well, uh, say Big Bang and that's God talking, but I'm going to tell you now that when God spoke, He spoke clearly and things happened, things moved. We see His power and we see His deity in all of creation. But if you track down with Genesis, you're going to see that everything that He made was good. When He made, um, 
the heavens and the earth, that was good. And when he made the days, that was good. Everything he made, that was good. And that's because he's a holy God. And he's a perfect God. There's nothing that he can do that's wrong. There's nothing that he will do that's wrong. And it's only good that he does. And in that goodness, we do see love, that he's wanting to share himself with his creation um, by, by uh, formulating all these ecosystems and, and, um, and taking care of everything through it all. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. Exodus 20.11 here. Did I give you that one? Yeah. Um, nope. Exodus 20.11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And this here is uh, in the law talking about the Sabbath. But we see how God made everything. In Psalm 104, 24, O Lord, how manifold, diverse, or just full of variety are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The, word, the earth is full of your possessions. And then John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And so we see the, that God is creator of all things. And because he is the creator of all things, he is the owner of all things. In Deuteronomy 10, 14, it says that indeed heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth, all that is in it. And we see in Psalm 24, 1, similarly, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. In Psalm 50, 10, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Clearly, we can talk about God's sovereign authority and ownership over everything, that how everything belonging to him is held accountable to him. And he's responsible, but he's also responsible for everything he's created. And because God is love, he provides for all that he's created. And he takes care for all of that he's created. In Genesis 9:3, he lets us eat things. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. If you were here the last time I preached, that would include cilantro, unfortunately. <laughs> or fortunately, um, but it also includes cows, which is great. Um, Psalm 65.9 talks about God. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide the grain for so you have prepared it. Job 38.41, uh, who provides food for the raven? This is a rhetorical question. When it's young ones, cry to God and wander about for lack of food. It's not Job that does this. It's not man that does this, but it's God who takes care. And then Exodus 14.22. So the children of Israel, here's where uh, God is taking care of and protecting the children of Israel from the Egyptian army. In, uh, in Exodus, when he's parting the Red Sea. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. And we see this in other sections. In, in, in Matthew and in Luke, it talks about how the ravens um, are, they don't work. Not that they're lazy bones, but they're too busy being birds. 
Um, but God feeds them. And the lilies, they're just too busy being flowers and glorifying God in that, that he clothes them. Or even in Matthew 5, where it talks about how God is pro- uh, providing for all people in, when he rains, brings rain on the just and the unjust. The ground is being nurtured and nourished and ready for the field workers. So we see here that God's love for all is shown through his providential care. Um, I have here, it's like a parent to a child. We don't birth out, well, I haven't birthed out any children. But when a child comes into a family, it's not just left there to fend for itself, to feed itself, to clothe itself, to teach itself, right? The parents created this child And they're committed to this child. They have a responsibility to this child to care for this child, to to make sure it's fed, to make sure it's warm or cool, to make sure that um, it listens to the right music, and to make sure that it knows about Jesus, to make sure that this child grows up to be um, successful as a human being. And that's what God did when... Um, that's what, what it means for God loving the world. He wants the world to be successful. He wants us to be successful as a, a cosmos. And, and so we get cool things like photosynthesis where the junk that we breathe out, the plants turn back into oxygen. Or we get this amazing food chain that we get to be on the top of, though sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Um, he provides us with jobs. I mean, think about Adam. He, he, Adam had a job. And if he it goes beyond giving him something to do, but realizing that as a person, that if we don't have a job, if we don't have anything to do or to, to work our hands or, to, or our minds, that we'll go in, insane and we'll start to degrade as people. He's provided us with the security of relationships with one another. And you know, I talked about the family and how you know, the mother and the father are supposed to take care of the children and how even friends, we have people that we can confide in if we're not um, able to confide, be with our family and that we have brothers and sisters in arms to walk along in this life with and the homes that we have and the finances that we have. These are all gifts as Scott talked about earlier and and these songs that we've sang, gifts from God. These are good gifts from God. But then something went wrong. And we, at, we responded in a way that wasn't good. Right? The devil came in the form of the serpent and he tricked our original parents. He tempted them and they fell into sin. I mean, think about it. I mean, Adam had everything he needed taken care of all the time. He had this close relationship with God. He always felt God's love. He always felt his care. And against all that goodness, he sinned. And against the love of God, he sinned. And against God caring for him and giving him responsibility and trusting him, he sinned. And you guys are right when he said, when I asked, you know, what are sinners? You said, we're all sinners. We've all done this. 
God gave us a heart that beats blood through our veins. And we're not thankful we sin. He gives us lungs so that we can breathe and brains so that we can think and figure things out. And we respond by sinning against God. And this is a very human condition that we're living with now. Romans 3 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what that means is that we've rejected God. Romans 1, 18, 19 says that. That we've, we, we see clearly that God exists. We see his deity and we see his eternal power. And we suppress all that truth. And what do we do? We start worshiping the gifts he gives us. Some of us, we, we, we find our fulfillment not in God, but in having a marriage and children. Some of us, we find our fulfillment in our jobs, and so we spend all our waking hours just focusing on the job. Some of us, we find our fulfillment in, in having a lot of land, or a lot of toys, or a lot of or TVs and ATVs, and, and, and just the ability to buy things. And some of us take for granted um, leisure. And we make that our idol, and we find fulfillment in that. Instead of thanking God for these things, we dismiss them, and we put these things as our idols, as our new gods. Another thing we do, Dan said this earlier, we violate the law of God. We commit crimes against God. We don't honor God. We don't respect God. We don't glorify God. One of the weird things that I saw at VBS, and maybe this is providential, but I don't know. When I would hear little kids say to their parents, when their parents would say, here, go here, no. And then they run the opposite way. Or when the, when the parents would say, here, do this, and they would say no, or just throw things. And it, overall, it was a great time, but children are children. And it dawned on me, that these children are sinning against their parents. And ultimately, they are violating one of the commandments, one of God's laws. So they're sinning against God too. No matter how cute they are, they're sinning against God. And then another way that the Bible talks about sinners is that we are enemies of God, that we are opposers of God, that we are the opposite and in opposition to God. We're like those little children who say no to the parents. Where God is good and selfless and he's giving of himself and taking care of and nurturing and providing. We do that sometimes, but we have ulterior motives too. And then we have selfish desires that probably usually trump um, the selflessness. And where God is loving and he's concerned with the well-being of other people, we seem to be careless with one, one, one another in how we talk to each other, always sarcastically and cynical and just tearing each other down and, and, and not wanting to build each other up. Or thinking it's okay to have big 
sinful brawls in front of the children and letting them witness such a a massacre in one sense that these two people who are supposed to be caring for one another and, and protecting the family at each other's throats over something foolish, usually. And so this is what we do as sinners. And God responds to this. God, with his wrath, he hates sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot even look down. The Bible talks about how he has to condescend just to look down onto the earth. And this is the only way that God's holiness can respond to sin. We kept thinking about God's holiness, holiness, holiness. He's holy. That means he's perfect and pure, that there's no sin within him. There's no wrong within, within him. There's no evil. There's no bad in God. And so when he's confronted with sin, when we bring sin against him, he can only respond in one way, by his holiness. And his holiness demands justice for the crimes that we commit against God. There has to be a punishment. It has to be made right. But not only that, but the sin must be eradicated. It must be dealt with. It cannot exist. If we get into heaven, you're going to realize one thing. There's no sin. Or you're going to realize a lot of things. But there's no sin. And so when God's holiness responds to sin, we see that it's because there's only sin that he responds in that way. If there's no sin, there's no wrath. There's no hatred of sin. But there is sin. So there is wrath. There is punishment. There is hatred of sin. And the Bible talks about this in very clear, intense language and imagery. I mean, are there any children still? Okay, I guess you guys. Remember the story of Noah and the ark that, that you were taught Um, this week, right? Why did the flood come? Priel? Yeah, there's rampant wickedness all over the world and only one family was saved. One family out of probably thousands if not millions. I mean, look how, how full the earth is now. And they were all destroyed. What about the the Egyptian uh, uh, army that was chasing after Israel? What happened to them in the Red Sea? The waters came over them, and they were killed, and their bodies came up on shore because God would not let their sin um, just go rampantly. Well, that was the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? What about Ananias and Sapphira? Sold off their land. They're going to have this happy commune. And what do they do? They withhold. They said, this is how much it was sold for while shoving the rest in their pocket. And so Ananias is taken. And then Sapphira comes later and she's asked the same question. And she lies. And they say, why are you sinning against the Holy Spirit? And then she dies. What about the Corinthian church? When they come to the communion table, the table that represents the, the, the death the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in, in bread and in wine. 
And they're taken in an unworthy manner, in a sinful manner. The Bible says that some of you were getting sick because of that. And some of you were even dying. God is not flim-flam with sin. He can't be. It's not just an uh uh-oh. It's not just a little boo-boo, a little mistake that we did that we can kind of erase and get rid of the pencil, the the eraser shavings or, or use white out to clear it out. It's not an oopsie. It's a degradation against God. We degrade him as God when we sin against him. We diminish who he is when we sin against him and we dismiss him as the supreme authority in our lives. And then we have verses like Psalm 5, 4 through 6. You're only going to have a part of that, Ben. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 11, 4 through 6. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. And then Proverbs 15:9, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. Sin deserves judgment, punishment, condemnation. In our verse here in John 3.16, perishing. It deserves death. It deserves hell. God cannot and will not let sin slide. So when we come back to the question, does God love sinners? What's the answer? He does. Well, how can that be? We just saw verses that said that he hates sinners and that he doesn't abhor the sin. It says it's the people who do the sin. Well, we need to understand that God's hatred for sin does not negate his love for his creation, for his people. If it did, he would not be God because God is love. And if he did, no one would be saved. But on the other hand, God's love does not negate or dismiss God's wrath and hatred for sin. If he did, he'd be an unjust God. He wouldn't be God. Just think about all the injustice that happens here on earth. People will get away with murder and rape and kidnapping Human trafficking would not be an issue. But God will deal with it all because he does hate sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we're going to shift the framework from loving the world to the giving of his son. Um... And I think it's important to understand that God still loves his enemies. The people that sin against him, he loves. 
and he doesn't desire, he desires good for them. Let me read you some verses here. Well, actually, the first verse I'm not going to read, I'm going to uh, summarize. Do you guys remember going in the Matthew series, Matthew um, chapter 5, where God tells his people, Jesus tells his people, you love your enemies. Those who persecute you, bless you bless them. Those who use and abuse you, you, you bless them. You pray for them. And at the end of that section, he says, you must be perfect or mature like your father who is perfect. And what Jesus is saying here is that in order to be like our father, we must love our enemies no matter what they do to us, no matter what sins and crimes they commit against us because the father loves the enemies that sin against him. And we see in a couple instances a look into, into God. Ezekiel 33, 11, it says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure, I do not take delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from your evil ways. He doesn't, send, he doesn't bring punishment to people and, and sit there and feel fulfilled and, and, and feel um, happy and, and, and pleasure from it. In 1 Timothy 2.4, he says, it talks about God who desires all men to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for this. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him, Christ. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, it's like God's wrath and God's love coming together to find the most perfect way to bring the most glory to God the Father. And that we see that in the cross. He gave his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, he who is holy and he was pure and perfect. And yes, he who is loving and who doesn't also need to be motivated to love. He just loves. It's who he is. And so for his love for us and his love for the Father, he gave up all his privileges of living in heaven, the, being there, being God. Well, he didn't give up being God, but having the, the privileges of, of that, uh, the privileges of being spirit. He came down and, and, and spirit, uh, flesh was added to the spirit within Mary's womb. And now the God of all creation is being nurtured through Mary's body and is being protected by Mary's body. And when he comes out and feels a shock of, of pregnancy, 
Jesus is wrapped in a blanket to be kept warm. He's being cared for. And when he gets older and he's running around with all the other kids and and the kids are saying, hey, let's go to the market. Let's grab, like, let's steal some fruit. Let's go to the other side of town because there's these suspect women that we can hang with. And Jesus says, no, why would I want to do that? I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to involve myself in sin. I'm going to obey the Father because I love the Father. They say that Jesus couldn't have sinned, and I believe that's true. But I think it's equally as true that there's not one part of Jesus that would want to sin. He wouldn't want to sin. He would only want to glorify his Father and his body because he loved the Father so much. He didn't reject him. He embraced him. He didn't commit any crimes against him. He obeyed him. He wasn't his enemy, but he was his son. And so he did all that which we couldn't do. And then he took this to the cross. He took this obedience to the cross for us and because he knew that God's wrath needed to be um, satisfied, as the one hymn says, that the man of God's justice and wrath needed to be um, fulfilled. So he died for us. He stood in our place. He stood in the place of the enemy. And he said, I'll take the sins of my father's enemy and I will clothe my father's enemy with my obedience, with my righteousness. The wrath that my enemies, that my father's enemies deserved, I'll take it for them. I'll pour out my blood for my father's enemies. They can have my life. And they can be my father, with my father. And through the death of his body, we read here, um, we're reconciled to the father. He laid his life down for us so that we can be reconciled, so that there will be no more wrath, there will be no more war, and there will be no more enemies. But we would be... Um, sons and daughters of God. But this only applies to specific people. And those specific people are the third section. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because Jesus didn't come down to condemn. He came to save. We were already condemned and he wanted to save us from that. And this is such a a wonderful promise, this everlasting life thing, uh, this not perishing thing. It's more than just freedom from condemnation. It's it's more than just um, getting our uh, sentence and our punishment handled with by Christ. It's being born again. It's being made new. We have new hearts and new wills and new desires. We're transformed. We're, we're, we're made alive with Christ to love God more and to honor him. And it's more than heaven. It's being adopted into the family of God. And so we go from being um, 
let's say, a neighborhood kid that parents would feed if their if their their son's friends were hungry, they would feed their friends. If their friends got hurt, they would clean up the boo-boo, put little band-aids on them. But it's like taking those neighborhood kids in and saying, okay, you're in this family now. You belong here. And that's what we get. We get to be sons and daughters. We're no longer enemies. Our sins are forgiven. We're redeemed. And we have a right relationship with God. And we're made holy and blameless before him. And that's for anyone here who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all of these things are true. They're true for you. But if you reject Jesus Christ, the scripture says that we're condemned. You're condemned. You're in your sin. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we all must make this choice. Do we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, realizing that, yes, there is wrath abiding on me, but because of God's love, because of who he is, he made a perfect way through his son to bring reconciliation, to satisfy the wrath, and there's no more wrath. But there's just love now, and love, and love, and love. Or do we continue to reject Christ? And we sit underneath the wrath of God, always. And let me tell you, while the wrath of God abides on you, his love is still being poured out on you. He's still providing for you. You still have a beating heart. You still have a family that's cute and loving and fun. You have a home. And all of these things are just to show you more and more and more how much he loves you. And you're just rejecting him more and more and more. And the punishment will be that much greater. So I just urge that anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ to come to him, to trust him, to believe in him and be saved. Your, your, your future is condemnation and wrath and hell and it doesn't need to be because God loves you. Because he cares for you and he's provided a way for you to come to him in a purely a beautiful way through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Find life in Jesus Christ. At the end of Ezekiel 33, 11, it says, why should you die? Why should anyone here die in their sin when we have the opportunity to be made alive in Jesus Christ through faith and repentance? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that while we were enemies, Christ died for us, Lord. We thank you, Father, that um, where there is no sin, there is no wrath. But there was sin and there was wrath. But you found a way in wisdom and love 
and grace. Father, we just thank you for the reality of your scriptures, the reality of you working in this world continuously, and the beautiful day that we get to enjoy here um, as we share this meal. Father, please bless the rest of this day, we pray. In Christ's name.